Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Dennis, everyone, welcome back to the Swisspreneur Show. It's great to have you here for another episode. <laughs> Pleasure to be back. So let's see how long we spend today. Uh, we're going to talk about how to bootstrap your company. And the first question is, what mistakes do you see Swiss startups making repeatedly when it comes to bootstrapping? Um, I think that's a question that you can relate, or that I, in terms of answering, would as well relate to normal startups. I mean, so bootstrapping a startup is a long-term project. Um, I think that is what you have to be aware of, except, I mean, we talked in the last episode, for example, about Top 400, which we bootstrapped as well, right. um, but had, and I think that's one of the very rare cases, a immense cash flow input, um, so where we didn't need a long runway. If I would compare it, though, with small PDF, um, the reason why we're currently leveraging so fast in terms of revenue, in terms of growth, is because guys really focus to build an amazing, easy and simple solution for five years on one platform. So yes, it was profitable and is profitable um, from the start, but it's not that they had enough room you know, to pay them out uh, significant salaries or dividends, so they really sticked to the plan and they believed in what they're building and at some point eventually it yeah leveraged itself and i think that is what you have to consider really bootstrapping a company is you need dedication you need time and you need resistance um so you won't succeed from the start um you will yeah need to build a product that fits the market by yourself because I mean, bootstrapping is a very slow way of handling things. I mean, you are by yourself, except you have 10 million on your own bank account and you can bootstrap a um, 20, 30 people company. Um, but I think that is a very rare case. Um, so if you bootstrap, either move into a topic that has cash in or a cash flow component um, that makes it easy for you to finance what you're doing. Um, or be patient and be resistant to what you're doing and just build and build and build. And as long as you're improving, and I think that is important because a lot of people tend to stick too long to the idea of what they're doing. Um, as long as things are improving, you're on the right track. At the point where things decline or go down, try one to two times to get it back on track, and if not, throw it away and focus on a different idea or do something else. So I think having that reflection, I mean, again, we're back at reflection or realistic reflection of what's the potential, uh, what's the state of your company, um, how much money does it do, what's the potential of the market or the, the market in general that you're addressing and how do you progress to what you want to become um, needs to match with your personal expectation. If your personal expectation is I want to bootstrap a company that finances my personal life and the only thing that I need to earn is six, seven, eight thousand francs a month, um, it's way easier to do it and co to come to that state because, I mean, yeah, you don't need a huge addressable market. Um, if you want to build a solid company or sell it at some point, or 
I don't know, um, yeah, never work anymore afterwards. Right. I think you need a different approach to things. And yeah, just have in mind what is your expectation? What are the pieces that you're looking for? And what do you try to want to achieve? And where do you stand? And make sure that this matches somehow. So this is a very personal decision that mm -hmm. you have to take also. Besides the personal level, what are other things that you'll let you evaluate whether it makes sense to bootstrap or not? I think the decision of bootstrapping versus VC versus debt um, is a lot about the market and the risk that you're willing to take. Um, and there as well different levels on any of these steps. Um, so I said, I think we talk a lot about bootstrapping in general, which I think is pretty clear. The expectation, being it financing yourself, selling it, whatever matches with the market that you have, I think it's a fair option to do. Be aware that you need patience and time to invest. Right. Um, on the VC side, which is like, you know, always the startup thingy that a lot of people are talking about, you don't have different options how to frame things. I mean, there are different stages from seed investment or business angel investment or family and friends investment who really VCs who can inject a big amount of money into your company, but at the same time be aware that by injecting money in your company, you buy a lot of expectation. Um, and you buy the valuation as well that you're getting on top of that. And we had this discussion in, in the Knip case, for example, and I see it a lot um, yeah, uh, on, on the market at the moment where when you have companies, just to make an example, with, with N26, 3.5 billion valuation or WeFox, one point something billion valuation. At least that's what they communicate. That's, I have no idea if it's true. Right. Um, having these valuations means that you need to have a higher value in the next financing rounds. And in case of Knip, it was like 60, 70 million valuation at the Series B. And the promise that you give to the investors is you will be at 100 million pre-money plus minus at the next round. And if you cannot match that, or if you do not see the potential of business to go there in the next one, two years, and you make a down round, the whole business is gone because the whole cap table will flip around and will basically dilute, dilute you or the others, or um, you go bust as a company in general because nobody wants to invest anymore because you kind of they believe they you trick them or the business is just not worth what they paid for. Um, so VC is really about your personal ambition and short-term high impact on the value that you're getting. So if you have the feeling that when you get a million from investors, you can get out three, four million in value from that. It doesn't necessarily need to reflect to revenue or to EBIT, but in value, take VC money because you will be faster on that track. Um, but choose that wisely because once you jumped on the VC train, you have to follow the VC train. Yeah. Um, no there, is, there is no chance to go out of the VC train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you cannot go back to bootstrapping except you go bust and just start again. Right. Um, and I think that's what most people are actually not aware of, that they you buy in money, which is cool, and yeah, you can finance a hip office, and you can finance uh, a hip coffee machine for people, and you can grow the company, but you have to fulfill these expectations. Right. And they are constantly increasing. Point. Maybe just a quick jump in there. You mentioned that you need to be able to charge that, that if you take on one million, that you can deliver 
value in three or four millions. I know that this sounds pretty easy in, in, in theory, but how do you actually do that in practice? This sounds like a, a not so easy judgment to make. I think you can frame it the way that is understandable. So what we always did, um, and it might be a reason for actual proper business planning is today I'm raising, let's say, one million francs for a four million pre-money valuation. This means I have a post-money valuation of financing of the company after the financing of five million. Um, today I'm doing, let's make it up, um, 10 million, uh, no, not 10 million, 10,000 in revenue, and I have only two people employed. Um, so by having that frame, I and the VCs, and that's the reason why they will invest, will know what is the next stage which you need to reach with the money that you get, which is the one million, right. then, then to raise the next round in financing or be profitable, which is a very rare case, um, yeah, to value the company at the next level. Um, so either they will help you to find that out or you will anyway have assembled that in your business plan because they sign it off by investing in the company. Uh, making a concrete example, uh, at the CNIP side of things, we raised the Series A basically with zero revenue, um, but with about 20,000 active customers. Mm -hmm. And as the revenue comes one year later in the CNIP case, it was pretty clear what 20,000 customers basically bring to the table in terms of, right. uh, in terms of value and revenue. And we believe that with the Series A, which was 2.5 million, we will be able to go to Germany, so add a second market, and go to about 100K-ish active users or people that we are actually serving on their insurance matters, which then would have brought us to, I think at that point, I need to recall, I think it was half a million or a million in revenues, um, but recurring and constantly increasing because they obviously come at a later point. And that was a clear definition and it was a hype. So we actually knew that going from 20,000 users in Switzerland to 100,000 users, Germany adding to that as market plus okayish revenue stream um, would bring us to a level where we can raise 30 million or 15 or 20. I mean, you cannot really make this up, but you have a range of what you want to hit to a 60, 70 million valuation. And I think this is, these are the steps that you need to frame for yourself and that you need to know. And there are always deviators that you can take. So if the revenue is not coming, maybe the story changes that you want to tell at the next level. But it needs to have more value than it has today. And I think this is the crucial part when you talk about venture capital is value, value, value. Um, and if you find someone who believes that you have a higher value than you had before and is able to invest money, usually your investors from the previous round will follow. Right. Do you have other examples about the value that you can actually create? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be revenue, for example, right? There are other sources of value that you can create in your company. I mean, it always relates to something which is at some point monetizable. Okay. Um, I think that is important. It can be deep tech. That's something different. But I'm, I think I'm more, at least from, as well from my experience, more focused on ICT and customer-facing cases. Um, so either you collect a huge amount of users um, and with that create a lock-in effect 
in that is the value, which is the Instagram case, which Facebook bought for 1.6 billion, and they only had eight employees or so. Um, there is no revenue value, but there's a huge user value, and the product is really, really sticky. And if you look at all the metrics, they must have been convincing to pay <laughs> 1.x billion, right. and it proved to be the right decision. Um, so that is a case, but it is actually a very rare case. In most of the cases, it will relate to a business model that works in some sort of business proving numbers and KPIs. Um, okay. And I think they have to improve on the journey that you are to have a higher value as a company yeah. at the next time. And improving, it means in that sense, growing, right? Yeah, depends on the value. So there are some values that are better if they decrease. Right, yeah, sure. <laughs> like churn should not grow. <laughs> exactly. Um, if that grows, it would be, be a bit problematic. But I think this is more of a discussion that you will have. I mean, they, they should improve. Um, and whatever it is, if it's acquisition costs, um, you can deviate from the growth plan, if you, I mean, if you see there is competition coming in the market, so the acquisition cost actually gets higher, so the lifetime value is lower. But with that, the market grows overall as well. Yeah. You can argue it through. It's just super important that the, the storyline that you have as a company being bootstrapped in the need of VC financing, being bootstrapped and wanting to raise PE money or selling the company, right. it's always the same process. So it works the same. It's, it's four to six months. You do the pitch, you prepare the numbers, you get ready, you prepare the data room, um, and it just needs to show value. Now at small PDF, you are bootstrapping the company and still growing at the fast pace, which, which is an incredibly impressive combination, I would say, because usually you grow uh, slower if you bootstrap, I would say. How do you make that happen? I mean, that's an incredible team effort and also huge success story as a Swiss-based company. Yeah, it's it's really hard to frame the magic. Right. <laughs> so if I would know the magic in depth and could be would be able to reproduce it all the time, I think uh, I would definitely sell that one as I don't know a book or so. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think the trick is different from company to company. So I think what we have as small PDF is a superb basis in terms of organic growth and retaining customers. Mm -hmm. So we've built over the last six years up a platform which has a reach of yeah, 35 million um, active users on a monthly basis. Um, we are, which I mean, amounts to two plus million users that we have on a daily basis on our platforms, and that per se gives you leverage. Um, so, meaning changing something in the conversion funnel um, or changing the pricing of the platform mm -hmm. with such a numerous amount of customers will have a dramatic, dramatic impact on your KPIs and the business levels that you have, right. be it top-line revenue, be it churn, positive as negative, um, yeah, be it retention, so customers coming actually back and being happy with your solution. Um, and I think this is what we are building on since yeah, more or less two years now. That we really believe that our product sells itself, and we always have to build a product that does that. But we needed years to come to the level where the product sells and leverages itself. So it's not that it has 
or has been that way since the beginning. Um, and I'm, I'm really not a big fan of people who teach uh, product needs to sell itself um, because yes, that statement is true, mm -hmm. but it is really, really hard to achieve to create leverage where that actually yeah, injects itself. So having a product, it has one X virality factor because that is what you want to create in the end. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that's what we've built. And that was the reason next to as well parts of the corona epidemic that's currently happening um, that just accelerates the business um, where I think we solve a problem that customers now more and more have in terms of new work or what you would call new work, which is more remote work, more digital processing, more yeah, digital archiving and handling of documents. And we have a solution for that. Yeah. So I think looking at yeah, growth and then how we bootstrapped and how the, the, the guys basically bootstrapped it is really shaping the product and being unbelievable, painful on optimizing it over and over and over. What's uh, incredibly impressive there to me is that you run experiments on a constant basis. You always want to a B test and find out does this letter or this text uh, convert to more paying clients or not. Can you tell us a bit more about the setup and the execution of that part and how it relates to actually bootstrapping your way into growth? Yeah, I think this is one of the success factors for us as a company. So data and making data driven or data based or fact based decisions is actually the DNA of small PDF. Um, so we don't believe in opinions, though we have them as well, but we really try to go against opinionating that a button that looks like this or a product that looks like this will be better. Um, and the basis that we have as a company, and I mean, this is obviously really nice with the customer base, is we can test. Um, so we can test everything. And you, at the moment where you see a 10% impact, and will just boost everything. Um, and that's the belief. And the, I mean, the reason for us having that focus, the way how we do it um, is that we have our own yeah, tracking system. So we don't really rely too much on Google Analytics, although we have it implemented. Um, but we have our own Redshift database. We have our own tracking. We have our own data department. We actually run all the queries and have the KPIs. So the source of truth for us is always our own data. And on top of that, we've built a experimentation system that actually lets us see, let's say, um, what was one of the examples of, um, of this week? Um, we actually changed just three nodes in the checkout process to being more descriptive to customers on what they're actually buying into. So just explaining what they are getting by paying nine, 12, whatever dollars to a small PDF. Right. Um, and we ran that experiment as a 50-50 experiment on English-speaking customers. And with our system, we're actually able to see the impact of the A-B test of each variant on any possible metric. So we don't only look at conversion, because in the end, conversion is nice, but 
Um, our conversion process is you have free users, you have free trial users who signed up and gave a credit card, but are not actually paying users because they have a two-week free trial, and then you have paying customers and you have churned customers. Um, and for us, it's obviously interesting how the not only how the conversion rate from a free user to a paying customer actually works, but as well how the people churn afterwards. Because right. what you sometimes or very often see is that looking just at the first part of the journey that you're actually tracking is, yes, I increased click-through rate or I increased conversion, um, but the numbers at the end, so the churn rate and the customer lifetime value actually decreases by way more than you've increased the start of the funnel. Right. Um, and specifically going more into the gray area of you know pushing customers to doing certain interactions with you, mm -hmm. that usually means that Yes, I, psychologically, I can force a customer pretty well on doing one action, but it's really hard then to maintain him if my value proposition is a different one, um, where is you know hidden somewhere, things like this. Right. Um, so I hope that makes sense in terms of it's really hard to explain. Um, but yeah, I think this is how we look at A/B tests. So it's not only conversion; it can it is retention, it is churn, it is payment, um, uh, so a successful payment, because credit cards can be not charged or whatever. Um, it can be anything that we're looking at towards NPS and happiness. Um, or, yeah, I mean, retaining users as weaker in customers, because we can as well force customers into paying customer. But if they don't use small PDF afterwards, they are very highly likely to churn in the second month. And I mean, obviously, the what we want is to have a customer that sticks with small PDF for like you know two years or, or more. Um, so we really need to make sure that we engage with our paying customers that they are sticking, and we build a sticky product. So basically, you are not only a technology company in the PDF sector, but also in your own data analysis, which allows you to build the right tools, or at least to make the right decisions. Um, some because it. it a data, or well, the data, as long as you do not interpret it the right way, obviously doesn't show you what to build. Yes. It only shows you if what you do in an A/B test is good or not good. Um, so this is what we call kind of quantitative analysis. So on the user behavior, on the user data, um, we do one thing as well, which is UX UI research which then actually brings up ideas and hypotheses that we want to test. So really having users in-house, um, preparing customer journeys that they should yeah, run through um, and solve with small PDF, and with that figuring out what is missing, um, still trying to make qualitative as well a bit as, as quantitative as possible because you can, I mean, asking one customer what he wants, you usually get not the right answer. Yeah. And the second question is, how can you... How can the customer know what he actually wants if he doesn't know what is possible? Um, which is the that's you know, a common dilemma. Exactly, but at least you get a feeling for what the problem is, and then you can, or the team itself, can think about the solution. And how often, and with how many people, in terms of users, do you actually run these experiments? Um, so qualitative, I would say on a biweekly basis, um, usually with five to eight 
people um, that are here for one to two hours. Okay. Um, and then really documenting everything, right. putting a proper synthesis to the back, um, and then putting hypotheses behind from a product perspective that the product teams can take up and are able to build, build products or features or flows or whatever it is in the end on top of that. And on the other end, on the quantitative uh, experiments of the A-B test that you have on your website. I think we currently have 40 A-B tests in parallel running. Wow. So yeah, I think it's like two, in between the 30 and 40 that we constantly have running. So usually, I would say three, four a week, um, good ones we are launching. And yeah, three, four, we are basically deviating as well or right. deciding. But you always test them on a subset of your users, right? Exactly. Um, so it's usually um, a segment of users, so being in the country or language um, or tool. Um, and then between 10 to 90%, depending on how big we believe the impact is. So, I mean, usually what we don't try to do is do heavy tests on the checkout with 50%, 60% of the user because you can and you will have negative effects. So you will have negative development on what's currently happening. Um, but yeah, so I think we try to find the right mix. Got it. So there really is the saying, constantly be A-B testing, and you're literally yeah. doing that. <laughs> yeah, de definitely. Yeah. I think we still can improve on that one, that for sure. But I think what you can say is that there is no functionality or platform changed or implemented without testing it. And you also mentioned the importance of the user base. Um, you know, this is always the chicken and egg problem to a certain degree. From your experience, how do you actually build a solid user base that you can then leverage for running these experiments or, or also, you know, making use of sort of the compound interest with the subscriptions that you have running and so on? Are there any recommendations of how to build it? <laughs> Yeah, that's like the million-dollar question, yeah. or one of the million-dollar questions. Um, I mean, answering it from the small PDF perspective, we rely a lot on organic traffic. And as Google is changing more and more towards um, judging websites by user experience and by I mean, positive user experience, right. um, and not just by dump content and backlinks, um, I think building yeah, easy to use products where people can solve what they are trying to solve is the best thing that you can do. Um, and, and in our case, I mean, organic means Google, Baidu, however you want, Yandex are definitely platforms where we scale um, and where we as well try to, I mean, internationalize. Uh, so we are running the platform on, I think, 21 languages at the moment. Um, it, another opportunity could be which is a tough one, to be frank, um, doing performance marketing and trying to leverage yourself of that. But you don't really do that at the moment, do you? For a small PDF, we don't. Okay. Um, so, it's, but it's I think it's a valuable thing to do right. if we if you find the right channels and have the right metrics, um, which is tricky um, because I mean usually people won't buy something or subscribe for something when they just had one touch point with you. So it needs right. multiple touch points. Um, so that's a valuable one. Um, and it can relate to Facebook, Google marketing. I mean, even Instagram performance or YouTube at the moment seems to work in some cases pretty well. Um, in some, it's TV. Um, right. So I think just, I mean, the whole marketing framework opens there. Um, I very much believe in brand. Um, but this is and can only be a long-term shot. 
Um, so as a startup, you won't build a brand in the first one to three years. Yeah. Very rare cases where that's actually possible. Um, but just looking at Zoom at the moment in terms of Corona, I mean, they really did a solid job and they had a good product um, to solve the needs of the Corona crisis. And they just, I mean, look look at the numbers and devaluation. I yeah. think that's uh, very decently what they what they did. And when people say we are zooming, I think then you yeah, exactly. made it from a brand perspective. And the fun thing that we just discussed today is that they were somehow possible to overcome the usual suspects that I would have expected to be the front runners in, in that crisis, which is Skype, for example. Yes. So, I mean, Skype is that. And Skype is basically now slowly integrated into Microsoft Teams. Um, so that one I find super interesting. But I mean, as I said, it's, it's expensive, it is long term, but if you have built a brand that solely has significant value, um, in, in terms of growth and building an audience. Uh, I think you can even bootstrap an audience, um, but it needs to be rather a community, a niche community approach. Um, so what I'm, for example, referring to at the moment is Figma. Um, so I'm not sure if the audience actually knows Figma. So Figma is basically um, the next Photoshop. Um, if you want to say it like this. They built a really, really nice product, which basically brings a collaborative design approach from a desktop application, which Adobe Photoshop is or Sketch is, um, to the browser by leveraging hardware as well from the browser on your device and with it allowing you to really, in real-time collaboration, design things or comment on designs and things like this. Nice. And they were actually able to convince the whole design scene um, from their product in what you more and more see is the people who actually do product design, which is I mean, next to photo and illustration. Um, I think the, the, these are the three big, big fields in design moving to Figma. So you very rarely find a Adobe uh, Photoshop or Adobe product as product design software in a startup environment because everybody's either moving to Sketch or to Figma. Um, so this is, I think, a nice example on how this can work, though it took them multiple years to do that, and it took them a very significant amount of money to do that. Right. Um, but yeah, I think these are more the pieces that I refer to building a proper community and or customer base. So yeah, building the brand is also sort of a, a higher leverage that you have there, but it probably also takes more risk and more money and time to build it. So it's just a higher bet in the end. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a higher. So you need to be able to afford it, but I think I would always think about it at least from the start. So to have a you don't need to have brand values or you know a really really in-depth described brand but you need to be aware what the brand means and that it is descriptive and recognizable and rememberable right. um, and i think this is where you can build on top i mean you see a lot of brands changing their logos and their brand names and their values as well over time and i think that's totally fair so you need to adapt on the road um, but you need to have a proper basis and i think this is what you just need to make sure funding your startup so I mean, what we've seen with, 
maybe a bad example, but Home24 or whatever. Yeah, so what we did, like because of the SEO-optimized structure of the URLs, like five, six, seven years ago, mm -hmm. I would not go into the, this direction anymore. I think right. it, it needs to be more recognizable than that. So is that also something that we can expect from small PDF? A stronger push in the brand direction? Uh, for sure. Um, I think we do have a pretty, I mean, with the custom base itself, the brand is sure. built. Um, so we do, we are, I think, recognized well in the kind of document environment. Mm -hmm. um, but we can do better. Um, and there are obviously thoughts and discussions that we have becoming more a tool which allows it to handle documents if small PDF is the, is the right framing of the brand. Um, right. um, yeah, not decided yet, but I think it's just fair to say that as well we discuss about that. You also talked about the importance of the organic traffic that you acquire, which was important to actually build the, the user base that you have today. To a certain degree there, you are also heavily reliable on Google. Was that ever something that you were afraid of because, you know, Google could just change the algorithm overnight and then you'd be nowhere, theoretically. And they do, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it is a dependency. So I would definitely, in a SWOT analysis, um, put this as a weakness, um, but at a strength as well. Uh, and I think that's a bit the dilemma which you as well see in which we are in. So you can still grow very decently over SEO, and right. it's very sustainable, at least as of now, for us. Um, but I mean, yes, if a Google decides to build their own, I mean, just look at Google Trips or Google Flights. Yeah. Um, so if they consider what we are doing as a very valid income source for them in adding value for their customers, mm -hmm. they can harm us for sure. So what are you going to do against that? Uh, I mean, the things that I mentioned, so I mean, brand is definitely one of them. Yeah. Retention is another one. So having more people actually going to you directly versus searching for stuff helps you on that path. Um, and frequency as well, but frequency relates to retention. Um, so I think these are the biggest and the most important measures to do on that side. Got it. Now, when talking about bootstrapping, you know, without taking any external money, you probably also have to face tough compromises or tough decisions. Can you give us a few examples about these bootstrapping decisions that are way tougher than if you have just outside money in your company? When bootstrapping, um, and it's definitely learning the focus on your balance sheet or your cash flow, depending on what the focus is and how you earn. I mean, cash flow can be way more interesting if you have kind of first time or high first time or initial payments. Right. Um, it's definitely something that you need to consider. Um, so you cannot spend money that you don't have. Um, and I think that's, that's good and bad. Uh, I think external money allows you to talk a bit yeah, less risk averse about opportunities and investment investments that you can do, being it performance marketing, being in brand, whatever. Right. We've always been very hesitant on investing money in, in marketing, for example. We didn't do, I mean, 
not sure. I think this year we haven't spent a cent in marketing. <laughs> um, I think that's very impressive if you can do that. Exactly. But on the other side, what we're doing is we are heavily investing in the product. Right. Um, so we've gone from two to eight product teams and really focusing them on delivery value for the users, which then have a more long-term effect, as we right. described, on retention and frequency. Um, yeah, but it's, I think it's a really tricky one um, on, on the customer-facing side. Mm -hmm. Now, what you're actually building at the moment also seems to be one of the world phenomena, I think, as Albert Einstein put it. You are investing in compounding interest. So you're investing in your own company. You're growing. And at a certain moment, you might become unstoppable because the recurring revenue is just so big that you can really almost not stop it. Is there a certain point? So what, what you say is that at the moment where you earn a lot of money, it just increases interest by itself. I'm, I'm not really sure if I'm buying into that, to be honest. <laughs> um, so I think what definitely makes sense is that, I mean, and that's the reason why SaaS companies, so software as a service companies with subscription models, being in B2B or B2C, have a very high value on the stock exchange on the private markets because you have recurring revenue. So exactly. I wouldn't say it's secure that we earn the money that currently is, uh, yeah, on the KPI boards next month will come to the bank account, but it's right. very, very highly likely to happen. Um, and that brings value. Though we have churn and we have to face churn, um, and specifically in a B2B environment, that's significant. Um, so we, we still need to improve the product and the approach to market and the market opportunities that we're having versus just collecting money and then, you know, it gets more and more and more. Right. Um, so I would love to see that it's not the case. <laughs> so we really need to chase opportunities on the market that we see. And I mean, if you look at the product going now from more a web utility to a platform, adding an e-sign functionality to it, um, adding storage to it, I think explains where we believe the value sits for customers or for more customers to actually opt into a right. subscription. Um, and at one point, uh, as well, can you imagine um, doing transactions in direction of M&A or investments to leverage the business that we have. It's just we are not yet at the stage where we can, on the one hand, I think, afford it. On the other hand, where the organization is as far um, to really consider that because, it, you know, buying someone always means you have people to integrate, you have systems to integrate, you have technology to integrate. But I would never say never if, if I look at the next two, three years for us. That sounds like a very interesting future ahead. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> so let's just assume that you're a new startup and you're now just facing, you know, you have the first product in the market and you just face the decision, which way should I go? Should I stay independent and stay bootstrapped? Should I go towards the VC or business angels and raise my first round? I know we already sort of covered that a bit in the first part, but what would you advise to a young startup to make that decision? So I think one piece that I really learned around the journey is at the moment where you cannot get a top tier investor on the board that Really, I mean, and I'm really talking about worldwide scope of your products and really ambitious plans, not about products that anyway are national or somehow related to an area. Um, if you cannot get a tier one investor on your deck, which means it's a Coyer, an index, an Excel, I think 
in Switzerland, I would consider with Alpine one of the best ones because they have international scale. And if you look at the portfolio, that's yeah. definitely um, really, really impressive. But they're not, they're not a lot. Mm-hmm. I, but if you can convince someone of them that has significant value to you as a company um, because they add an amazing network to what you're actually doing, plus um, the follow-up round is easier to raise. And it's yeah. in the VC game, if you once decide into that, that should all be, always be a consideration. So one example, um, I met one uh, VC, which was pretty, I mean, just from a discussion point of view, pretty interesting. What he was saying is, you know, if a Sequoia invests in you, the follow-on run, on round is secured with a double valuation that you have. Just for the sake of having this investor on board, because the name has such a high value to you. As, I mean, that's not always the case, obviously, but sure. I think it, it really drives value. But at the point where the name or the network, and network is usually overrated with VCs, um, or the experience, and experience is usually overrated with VCs, um, add value to you as a company, I wouldn't do it. Um, and I'm usually quite afraid, and I've seen it a lot in the last weeks and months, where you know you have investment um, announcements, and then the cap table consists of Swiss Conventures and Rinier. <laughs> without yeah, um, weighting them low. Um, but I think for you as a business, as an international business, I think that's important to say, um, this is not a cap table that you want to have. Right. You're not able to scale out of this. No international investor will buy into a shareholdership that consists of yeah, uh, corporate venture companies. Yeah. Um, you do need lead investors that are tier one, and there are not a lot in Switzerland. Is there any recommendation about how you can actually win them over for your case? For the uh, assumed venture case that we're exactly. talking now about, uh, I mean, it's a lot about connections um, and intros. So usually investors value a intro from former founders that they invested in. Um, and that's the best start of the discussion that you can get. And in, in the end, it's a discussion, right? So you want to have an I&I conversation with a VC. Um, and usually after two or three meetings, you have a feeling if it makes sense or not, um, because it needs to fit to you as a person and they need to believe in what you're doing as well. Um, so I would always, if you don't know the people in person, mm-hmm. I would always try to find someone who they invested in who can make you an intro. So what stuck most with me today was really this VC train. If you get on it, you are not getting out of it, not no matter where, it, it, yeah. where it gets. <laughs> Is there anything else about you know staying bootstrapped or actually bootstrapping your company that you would like to add to today's conversation? I think I mean what what struck me with small PDF and what the three guys actually built, and one of the reasons as well why why I joined the company is. Um, I think bootstrapping even now is pretty underrated. Um, so it's not a shame to not have VCs in the company. For me, it's actually the opposite. This is the highest form of entrepreneurship, if you can pull that off. But looking at how um, a venture lab, for example, or all these organizations, I mean, train future entrepreneurs, they usually teach VC trains. Right. 
Um, and I think I just want to make, make people aware that this is not the only option that you have. You can go the depth direction, and you can go the boots. I mean, we didn't cover that. And it, I think it doesn't really necessarily make sense in the Swisspreneur context. Um, but that's definitely an option. And you can go the bootstrapping route, um, which can be an option. And bootstrapping doesn't necessarily mean that you don't take any money from externals. But um, it's different, and it's slower, and it's more focused, and it's more efficient than the VC train. Um, so consider this an option. Um, always reflect it to the idea that you have and the way how you want to approach the market. And I think, I mean, I know a lot of folks, specifically in SaaS, where you, I mean, you have yeah, iterative uh, increases of, of revenues, where it actually could make sense. You can scale a company to a very, very, very decent size. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we're seeing with you right now. So that was it about the bootstrapping questions. To conclude the episode, I have some small rapid fire questions prepared Ooh, for you. OK, I'm prepared. Awesome. So I give you a statement or a selection, and you just make a choice and uh, quickly explain in one sentence why you made that choice. OK? Yeah. Berlin or Zurich? <laughs> That's a mean one. To start. Yeah, you tricked me <laughs> in that one. Uh, Berlin for family reasons mm -hmm. um, and for startup networking and experiment reasons. Mm -hmm. Zoic uh, for surroundings and I think deep tech. Good answer. Wealth or happiness? Happiness. Uh, I think it's there's no choice there. Makes sense. What makes you smile? A lot of things, actually. Um, I think it, from a good joke to nicely put sarcasm at the right point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and you have like blunt answers, like seeing my daughter and stuff like this, but <laughs> don't need to cover that. <laughs> and if you had to make a choice, bootstrapping or fundraising? I think for me, the next one would be bootstrapping. Just I, I've seen the VC track now for a very long time. And it, I admire it, um, but I think creating something sustainable um, yeah. in full ownership, even if it's a, if it's a bit slower. And I, th I mean, not riding that hype train, uh, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe even I'm mean, answering it a bit longer now, but uh, it's not a shame to be slow. So we made a mistake several times in the past that we really tried to be fast and ride the American way and ride the wave. Right. And we just haven't been efficient doing that and suffered from it afterwards. So I think it's not a shame to be not the first mover or not the biggest one. But as long as you maintain efficiency and sustainability and are on the growth track, the other ones will fall down at some point when they you know, over-squeeze things. Yeah. There's a very nice uh, saying that comes to mind. I don't know who said it. I think it's like a Chinese proverb or something. But it says, should I go fast or slow? The answer is, it depends whether you know where you're going. And I think that's very <laughs> applicable. So if you're wrong and you're yeah. fast, you really can kill the company. Yeah, agree to that. Where do you go to think? Usually the gym. OK. So you, you can still think there? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. No, definitely. If it's on the treadmill or you know with a barbell or so, so I think there are nice slow things to do. Right. I wouldn't been able to think while sprinting or so, but yeah. uh, there are ways. And the last one for you: trade sale or IPO? 
Uh, IPO because I haven't done it. Awesome. Dennis, thank you so much for your time again. It was Thanks a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> All the best for the future. I'm sure it's going to be exciting for you and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for that. We would like to thank our sponsor, SBB Startup. The Swiss Railways launched their own startup program, so no matter if you're already an established company or just have an idea, they are eager to hear from you if you think that your company or your idea is a good fit to the Swiss Railways. You can get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com and they will support you with internal connections, with coaching, and also are very interested in launching a pilot project with you. So if you think that your product or your idea or your company have the potential to collaborate with the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them at sbbstartup.com. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode.